So we're uh, continuing our series called The Pursuit of Happiness, and today we're studying the sixth uh, beatitude, so there's only two more to go in this series, and then we'll be, uh, we'll be done with this series. So uh, that's kind of sad in and of itself that we're almost done this series, uh, and uh, this is our summer uh, series as well, so that means that summer is coming close to an end, and I keep telling that to people, and they keep telling me to stop mentioning that, that they want summer to keep going on, so sorry about that. <laughs> um, so we are studying Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, and though all the Beatitudes are important, I would actually want to just point out this as we start here, as I think that this Beatitude is particularly significant. Uh, so much so that Martin Lloyd-Jones, many years ago, uh, he described this Beatitude as a watershed Beatitude. Uh, so if we were to rank them in some kind of order of importance, perhaps this one would be uh, right there at the very top. Uh, and yet we can't really do that. As we've been going throughout this study, we'll see that uh, each and every one of these Beatitudes really just kind of builds upon each other. And so uh, before we actually read uh, verse 8 today, I actually want to start again at the very beginning, just as kind of a quick review of the different Beatitudes we've read so far. So I'm going to jump up to verse 3 here. So it says, Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Happy are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Happy are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And then verse 8, Happy are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This whole series is about the pursuit of happiness and kind of line by line, statement by statement, I think that Jesus is explaining to us what happiness truly looks like. Uh, to be truly happy uh, doesn't mean uh, just ultimately having freedom to, to do whatever you want, whenever you want to do it. Uh, happiness isn't ultimately found in riches, in, in health, in, in self-actualization. Uh, Jesus says that truly happy, those who are truly happy, are those who see God. Uh, happy are those who are pure in spirit, for they will see God. And, and so there's, there's lots that we could talk about in this beatitude today. And uh, to just quickly jump into it, I want to share with you uh, what I think is really the big idea today and where we're going from there. So really the big idea, if you're taking notes, you can write this down, is that if we want to be happy, we must ruthlessly eliminate everything that prevents us from seeing God. If we want to have real, true, lasting happiness, then we must be ruthless in our elimination of anything that stands in our way between us and God. And I really purposely am using this word ruthless in there because I really want to get this point across, is that if we want to see God, then we have to go to war. That we actually have to really uh, go to war against anything that is in our way. So this isn't a casual statement. Jesus isn't kind of just sleepily to us preaching to all these people, just kind of, kind of yawning, like, you know, happy are the poor in spirit. Like, he's, he's calling us to something today. 
uh, that we don't actually just casually eliminate these, these things. And as we uh, study this passage, I'm going to show how this is actually a hard saying that Jesus is, is talking about here. This is actually a radical statement, and yet we're not called to do this all on our own. This is actually uh, where all the hope and joy comes from, is that God is actually going to help us in all of this. Uh, but if you are just kind of passively listening to this today, I just want to call you to this, that, that if you're casually listening, if you're casually reading the Bible today, I think that's where maybe some of our frustration comes in Christianity. And so we're just kind of listening to the music and listen to a message, and then, you know, then it's over, and you're like, well, that didn't do anything for me. Jesus is saying, like, engage, get involved with this. He's calling us to war today. So I want to study this passage, and I want us to really look at the last part of it first, And I want us to understand, what does it actually mean to see God? Or maybe even more than that, like, why does this even matter, right? When we talk about happy are the pure in heart, they'll see God. What does that even matter? Uh, This beatitude doesn't seem very practical at the very beginning. Uh, It doesn't seem very practical. Uh, I think that most people would be able to read this statement and ask the question, so what? So what does it mean to see God? That just kind of sounds like this pie in the sky, this out there kind of idea. But doesn't Jesus understand that we have like real problems in our lives? Uh, That I actually have like real significant issues I need to be working on. I have real concerns in this world. What does seeing God have to do with any of that? And I want to make this connection. I think that Jesus is saying this radical statement for a reason that it truly does impact our lives. So I want to put it this way. I think that probably the biggest problem that we have in this world is that people don't see God. And they're blindly looking for something, just looking for for something that will actually uh, fill this, this hole, this craving that they have in their souls. And so they're looking for something. And, and the problem is that when people don't see God, they don't know how to actually live. And probably one of the best examples that we can see in Scripture is the entire book of Judges. Uh, Read through the book of Judges, and what you'll see is time and time again, the author of this book uses the same refrain. It's this refrain uh, that, that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So time and time again, it says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and then something horrendous happens. It's not like everyone just kind of culturally just kind of figured out what was, what was the standard of the day, and everyone lived harmoniously. Everyone just kind of figured out the standard of the day, and then everything went off the rails. That's what the entire book is all about. And so uh, if you read the end of the book of Judges, there's this horrendous, evil story. So there's this man, and uh, an Israelite, and he has, uh, it's not quite his wife. Uh, she would be considered a, a concubine. She's kind of a, a slave who he's kind of married to. It's kind of this weird cultural thing. But anyways, uh, and so what ends up happening is some men in the city take her and they rape her and they kill her and leave her in front of this man's doorsteps. So he opens the door and the next day and he sees her broken, shattered body laying there. And what does he do? He takes his body, he chops it up into 12 pieces and sends it out to the 12 tribes of Israel calling for justice. And this is not one of those passages that you read and the Bible's like, go and do likewise. No, no, no. This is one of those passages where it's saying like, like how evil and wrong is everything in this story. That this man does not um, handle the situation right, the, the evil that's happening in this city, and yet all these people are doing what is right in their own eyes. 
This is our problem when we don't see God. There's just a lot of confusion in our world that without him, that we're just kind of making it up as we go, just trying to figure things out. And, and if you're not aware of it, right, like right now in our world, we're going through this cultural revolution and that from five years ago up until now, like, like things have drastically changed in how our world just kind of views uh, sexuality and, and everything going on. And, and so all these things are changing. People are just kind of looking for, trying to figure things out in their own minds. But I want to go even deeper than that. I think that this is even more significant than just like the culture wars and everything going on in the world right now in terms of that. But when we don't see God, what we're actually finding is that there's something that we were created for that we just can't seem to satisfy on our own. That everyone's really looking for what I would call a sense of meaning and significance in the world, or I would even use the word of the sense of transcendence, something more divine than our regular reality. And so this is why uh, some people look for it through climbing a mountain, right? So go for a hike, you get to the very pinnacle, and you look out upon all of creation, and you feel something in that moment. You feel like there's something more to life. It's why people go through arduous hours of climbing to finally get to that moment where they can look out upon the earth, and they, they feel something in that moment, or even someone else, uh, for some people, they try to search for transcendence uh, through good food and good drink, right? And, and so you can go out for a, an amazing steak dinner, and, and there's something that happens there that doesn't happen when you go to McDonald's. There's something going on. I have a good friend of mine, uh, what he likes to do is he'll go out with someone for like a good steak dinner, go out to the keg or somewhere, and, and they'll be eating the food, and he'll ask them this question of, what does that steak, what does that teach you about God? That's a good, that's a profound question. Why does that stir something in our souls? We're searching for something. Or even uh, we search for transcendence in music. Uh, so if you like read a, a review of a, of a concert, you know, you'll find that often they'll use words of adoration, these worshipful, euphoric words to describe what happened at this concert. And I read this years ago. Uh, a guy went out to uh, one of uh, U2's earliest concerts with the Joshua Tree Project. Uh, that was their album at the time. And, and just listening to it, and he's like, it was almost like this worship concert. Something was going on in the air. Or even like a, a few weeks ago, there was the, the SpaceX um, shuttle launch, and, and I had a bunch of friends online. They're commenting, they're watching it, just kind of glued to their TVs. And they really wanted to get this sense of, um, you know, many years ago, people, they saw the, the moon landing, and they, they felt like there's something significant going on in, in the world. And, and all these people were looking for the same kind of feeling, the same kind of emotion uh, with the SpaceX project. And so what we need to understand is that everyone is, is, is searching for this sense of transcendence because we're all created to see God. We're actually created, we're hardwired for this. Without him, nothing has meaning. And all these ways that we try to find transcendence without God ultimately ends up coming short of what we're really looking for. It's why the person who climbs the mountain as they're walking down, all they have in their mind is, well, what am I going to do tomorrow? Which, which mountain peak am I going to uh, climb up to tomorrow to get the same sense? And what they might find is that it's not quite the same as that first time they went up. It's the same reason why uh, those who find good food, good drink, uh, they'll just kind of end up going further and further down there, ends up perhaps falling into debauchery. That music is never enough, though, especially like if you listen to uh, non-Christian artists, they, they have this sense of the transcendent, but they have no real connection with God, and they end up shipwrecking their lives because they, they feel like they're so close to something, yet they can't ultimately experience it. 
They're truly looking for that one thing that will give their lives true, lasting meaning. And so to see God is what we're after today. And this should be the expressed goal of every believer. Uh, this is actually what the Word of God is after. Uh, many years ago, uh, I was told when I was like in youth, um, when I was a, a, a teenager, uh, I was told, you know, Bible, it stands for B-I-B-L-E, you know, basic instructions before leaving earth. And, and at the time, I'm like, yeah, that's great. Uh, but what I realized over time is that this isn't like a book of instruction. This is actually a book uh, of, of revelation, of revealing who God is. And of course, then that's going to impact how we live our lives. But everything in this book is not really about how to live, but it, it's who we're living for. And it's why, like, we do this here on Sunday. Like, like trust me, like, this is not for uh, any kind of uh, tradition or sake of duty that we come here. Like, that shouldn't be our reason for being here. That we should be coming into this church building on Sundays uh, to get a closer glimpse of who God truly is. And that's what this passage is talking about, is that those who are pure in heart, that they are going to actually see God. And eventually they'll see God ultimately fully revealed in the future, but we get these little glimpses of who God is right here and right now. That those who are pure in heart, they'll be able to see God, his fingerprints throughout creation, from from looking at a a sunrise to looking at the intricacies of an ecosystem, uh, from the galaxies of of seeing the billions of stars all the way down to like the little tiny anthill, that in all these things you can see that it's not just randomly molecules smashing into each other that somehow evolved into some kind of organism that seems kind of structured. No, all these things, so if you know who God is, you begin to see his, his fingerprints upon creation. Or uh, the believers should be able to see God working throughout history. Uh, From both the good and the evil men who have ruled nations, we should begin to see these patterns of how God's been moving throughout history. Even in the history of the church, that, that, you know, the church has survived for over 2,000 years and, and the church has spread across the earth and has survived, um, though there have been empires and nations that have risen and fallen through all this time, and yet the church remains, the church that God established. We can see God working in our lives so we can feel his presence as we worship together. Like tonight, as we have our hymn sing out there uh, in the garden, in that area, it's not because uh, it's this tradition that we like to sing, you know, Amazing Grace and these songs that we grew up in singing. I mean, the whole goal of, like, if that's the goal, like, count me out. Like, I, it, it's, like that sounds boring to me. Tonight, we're actually going to pursue the presence of our God. Isn't that like way more exciting than just singing a song 100 years ago? No, tonight we're going to pursue the presence of God. And we get to have all these little glimpses of who God truly is. And ultimately, all this is kind of heading towards this. This is what we're kind of trying to get to today. Is that to truly see God is to see him without mediation and in all of his glory. This is where we're pursuing. This is what we want to experience in our lives without mediation. That often we, we like all these examples I've given of, of like seeing God in nature, like that's a mediated, uh, it's not truly him, but we're getting glimpses of who God is. Even in scripture, we, we get these poetic, um, poetic instances, uh, uh, descriptions of who God is. And yet we are looking for something that's unmediated in all of his glory. And this is actually uh, as Shereya read the passage today from Exodus chapter 33, we see that Moses is one of the, the rare instances where he actually got to see God in his full glory. In Exodus chapter 33, I'll just kind of recap what Shereya read. 
Moses was standing on the mountainside and he's speaking to God and he cries out to God. He says, you've called me to lead these people, to lead them from slavery in Egypt through the desert into the promised land. And God, I can't do it on my own. I can't just lead them this place. I need something I'm leading them towards. God, I need to see who you truly are if you're calling me to this task. And so he's standing there on the mountain, he's crying out to God, show me your presence, show me your glory, tell me your name. Like he's, he's pursuing God, all of his heart's pouring out, God, show me who you truly are. And so God, actually, in his mercy, he tells him, I can't reveal my full self to you. He said that if I was to show you my face, my full glory, you would be obliterated into nothingness. That, that, was, that would be his experience, and that would be our experience. If God just opened up uh, the roof to this building and just shone his entire glory upon we in our human form, like right now, right here in this world, like we wouldn't be able to withstand it. And so in his mercy, he says, I'll show you just a shadow, just a glimpse of who I am. So he kind of hides Moses uh, around a rock on the, on the mountainside, and he passes his glory by, and Moses can look out. He doesn't see the full face of God. He just sees the backside, just a glimpse of who God's glory, what God's glory is, and yet it changes his life forever. From there, he was motivated. He could take on any task God has given him because he's seen what the Lord is like in all of his glory and splendor. And this is what we're created for. This is what we're going to experience at some point in eternity. We are going to, no matter what, no matter what you believe, you are going to see God in his full glory. It's what we're created for. Like how a flower is created to be nourished by the sun. Our souls were created to be nourished, to be given life by the glory of God. And without seeing it, our souls begin to wither and die. So if that's our goal, what actually prevents us from seeing God? What gets in the way? If that's what brings us joy, true lasting happiness, uh, what is getting in the way? And I want to put it this way. It's not as though there's some kind of ambiguous smog in the atmosphere that somehow gets in the way between us and God and we can't figure out like what's, what's going on here. Uh, the word of God is incredibly clear on this one point that the thing that prevents us from truly seeing God is actually our own sinfulness. The prophet Isaiah, he put it this way. In Isaiah chapter 59, he said, But your iniquities, so your sin, have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. This is so important to understand that it's our sins that have prevented us from seeing God's face. And I think that this is one of those lines, one of those passages where I think like the moral police uh, would stop there and say, okay, hold up. All right, so if it's our sins that are preventing us from seeing the face of God, uh, then all I need to do is live better. So Daryl, okay, lay it on me. What, what, what are the things uh, that I need to do to live better? Uh, so maybe like look to the Ten Commandments, maybe get those down and, and all these different things uh, to kind of live our lives the very best. This is what people are, uh, would often kind of lend towards, just kind of doing our very best to live our lives. Uh, and the Pharisees would have agreed to this. They, they actually uh, studied the scriptures. They, they counted up all the laws and they were trying to live this perfect life. And what they found is they couldn't live a perfect life. And you'd think that that would be an indicator to them that, that they're doing it wrong. But they decided, you know, these laws aren't enough. And, and as I've been studying this, I realized that the Pharisees, maybe one of their greatest sins was that they didn't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. 
They looked into scripture. They saw how they're supposed to live as Israelites of following God. And they said, you know, that's not enough. I need more laws. I need more, more things to figure out here. So they added more laws and more laws that they just kind of put right beside the Torah. And they, they, they were believing all these things. And things were just getting more complicated and more complicated over time. And so Nicodemus, who was one of the greatest Pharisees of the day, he comes up to Jesus. Nicodemus, who's called teacher of teachers. He's like one of the greatest Pharisees. He comes up to Jesus and he just says, Jesus, like, okay, what law, like, figure this out for me. What am I actually supposed to do? How do I actually live a pure life? And Jesus explains it to him. He says that, you know, it's not simply all about actions. It's not just all about our actions. That actually goes much deeper than that. It's not just our actions that cause this rift between us and God. The problem is actually more internal than it is actually external. Uh, This is actually what the Apostle Paul explained in his letter to the Ephesians. He put it this way. He said that they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. The Apostle Paul explains that the biggest problem is having a hardened heart that leads to darkness. Those hardened hearts that are actually separated from God. Understand that it's the heart that's actually the source of all the problems that we're truly going to experience in our lives. In Matthew chapter 15, uh, Jesus was, was uh, walking with his disciples and, and speaking to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees uh, were, were challenging Jesus, asking him you know, uh, questions about cleanliness and all these different things. And, and Jesus finally breaks it down for them. And, and so in Matthew 15, he, he puts it this way. He says, Out of the heart comes evil thoughts. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. For these are what defile a person, but eating, what, <laughs> but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. So what actually prevents us from seeing God is actually at the center of who we are. Evil doesn't just come from like our environment around us. Uh, that's not the key thing that Jesus isn't just saying, okay, just make sure that, you, that you're like, born into a good family or you get into a good church. Just change the environment that you're living around. And that's what's going to cure you. That's what's going to give you a pure heart. He doesn't say it that way. Uh, Jesus doesn't point towards education. He doesn't say we just need to educate sin out of our hearts. Just need more rules, more laws. He doesn't say we need to legislate laws to keep people from sinning around us. He's not calling for that. None of these things can ultimately fix what's wrong with humanity. And there's actually been attempts over time to like build perfect utopias, right? Uh, And none of them have worked so far. Um, I I recently watched a short documentary uh, about uh, these people trying to build a utopia. Uh, The short documentary was on the biodome that was created in Arizona in the early 90s. Uh, so if you look at it, it's this just massive greenhouse that they built. And inside, they filled it with all these plants, uh, and they even replicated mountains and, and oceans and all these different environments. And the whole goal, this whole uh, experiment that they are trying to do was trying to figure out if they could uh, create a self-sustaining uh, ecosystem uh, here on Earth uh, without any kind of outside influences except for like the sun shining in. And they're trying to figure this out so that someday, uh, if ever we could uh, do space travel to other planets, we're going to have to be able to live on these other planets and and grow our own food and do all these things during the space travel to get to these planets. And so this was kind of an early step in this direction. Can we actually be entirely self-sustaining? So they build this amazing structure. Uh, 
And what's really interesting about this story, this is the early 90s, uh, is that they ran into a couple problems. One was they didn't quite get all of the, the engineering quite perfect, so they couldn't quite make a perfectly self-sustaining ecosystem. They couldn't quite do that. But the biggest problem that they experienced was the people involved with it. Uh, so part of this experiment was they were going to put a team of scientists inside the biodome, lock the door, and they were going to be inside there for the next two years. So for two years, they would have everything that they could possibly need. Uh, they still had access to all the technology they needed, and, and they could grow their own food, and they had it all figured out, and they got the smartest, the best people to be involved in this two-year experience. But what happened was that, that these people, they just couldn't get along. Uh, and so not even a year into this project, the group was so divided, they actually split off into two camps. One group's going to live over here, one group's over there, and they're, <laughs> they're going to figure out how to live on their own. The problem is for them to survive, they had to all work together, yet they decided, no, we're not going to work with that group anymore. We don't like them. So they decided to go off on their own. Uh, the people who are managing this project, they thought, well, maybe we just got a bad batch, so let's try this again. So two years later, they get another group in, and almost the exact same thing happens. If, uh, not even a year into it, these people just couldn't quite get along. So smart, educated, respected scientists living in a utopia, everything provided for them, they couldn't make it work. There's something inside of us. That's the problem. They brought the, their, their same hearts into, the, into this building. There's something inside of them that, that produces sin. And this is why Jesus is explaining in this beatitude, saying, happy are the pure in heart. Only those who have pure hearts can actually see God. So what does it actually mean to be pure in heart? How do we actually do this? Uh, so I want you to, if you have your Bible there, turn to Psalm chapter 24. Psalm 24, what you'll see often when Jesus is teaching, he's often referring back to the Old Testament the Old Covenant, uh, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, to, but to fulfill it. So we often refer back to this as a way to explain what the scriptures are all about. So Psalm 24, Jesus condenses all of this in his one statement, but I'll read the first part of the psalm. It says, number one, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Verse three, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has cleaned hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. So it's very likely Jesus is quoting from this, and you'll see in verse 3, he's talking about this idea of seeing God, of, of ascending the mountain to be in the holy place with the Lord. And then he describes here in verse 4 what it means to have a pure heart. And so first we see that a pure heart is actually a heart that has been cleansed. A heart that's been wiped clean of, of any contaminations. Uh, this idea of creating a pure heart is actually symbolized uh, under the Old Covenant with this idea of ceremonial washing of the hands before they would eat food or before they would sacrifice uh, in the temple. And the Pharisees actually got after Jesus, right, uh, for, for his uh, disciples, uh, for his followers, uh, for not washing their hands properly when, when they would eat with other people. And, and Jesus kind of, he, he replied back to him, he's like, do you think that passage is literally about the dirt underneath your fingernails? Don't you understand? It's actually pointing to something far greater than that. Yet the Pharisees, they're all like concerned, well, we got to scrub your hands the right way. That has nothing to actually do with it. God is calling us to have clean hearts. 
Impurity goes beyond religious traditions. It goes beyond being a decent person and, and living a, a rigidly moral life. But, but like all those things are good. Like it's good to live a moral life, but Jesus is saying it goes beyond that. We actually need our souls to be cleansed. Impurity goes beyond just being cleansed, though. This passage, it talks about this idea that a pure heart actually is about having an undivided allegiance to God. A pure heart relies fully on God and does not trust in what this passage calls an idol. And I know as soon as I say idol, you might start thinking about like a little trinket, like a little gold figurine of like a, a, like a calf or like a little like Buddha type thing. Uh, so that kind of what comes into our minds. Uh, but biblically, an idol is anything that we place above God. So that for some people, they would place money above God. That they're just kind of looking for financial stability. As long as I have enough money in the bank to provide for my needs, that's all that I really need out of this. For some people, they're looking for comfort. They're like, God can ask me to do anything, go anywhere as long as it's comfortable, as long as that's what I get. Power and status can be an idol. Actually, during the Reformation, uh, Calvin and Luther actually called out the Catholic Church for placing tradition uh, above the Word of God. That tradition actually became an idol for them. And the Pharisees, um, they created laws that they put above the Torah. And so for them, that was their sense of idolatry as well. That to place our trust in any of these idols is actually to have an impure, to have a, a divided heart. The problem with us is, is that we, we all tend to kind of go this way. We all kind of think of, okay, God can take care of these areas of my life, but I'm going to take care of maybe these smaller details. I'm not quite sure if God's ever going to get to them, so I'm going to focus on that. And we all struggle with this. Paul even talked about it in Romans chapter 7. Uh, he described how um, he, he wanted to, he so desired to follow after God, and yet there's these other times where he's desiring other things. It's the same challenge that we're going to have in our lives as well. So how do we overcome this? How do we actually get a pure heart? Then we must ruthlessly eliminate everything that prevents us from seeing God. But how do we actually do this? And I would say that it's actually this narrow road that God is calling us down. But unfortunately, there's a ditch on either side of this road. And so I'll explain both of these problems here using these words, legalism and antinomianism. So the first one is I think that there's a temptation to become more like a monk than anything else. Now for some people, they would say, you know, they believe that they, can, um, that they need to cut themselves off from the rest of the world, cut themselves off from, from any evil influence, anything that might uh, pollute their lives. Uh, they might believe that this is the way to become pure, uh, and it makes a lot of sense at first, um, but it's not actually mandated in Scripture to cut ourselves off from the rest of the world. Like, it makes sense, like, yeah, that's the way that we would remain pure, but, but God actually calls us to go out into the world to share the gospel there. So clearly, we're not all called to live this type of life. And yet, this idea of, of legalism is this idea that we can actually fix ourselves, that we can see the impurities in our hearts and we can just kind of scrub it clean by doing all the right things. 
And, and I can't help but uh, imagine at this point a, a video that I saw recently online. Someone posted this. Um, they, they ordered something uh, through Skip the Dishes and, uh, from this restaurant, and they, they accidentally put the pan that they cooked the food on in that dish. So apparently, they're working really fast in the kitchen. They didn't plate it. They just threw the, the, the whole pan in, into the bag. And, and so this person gets this, and she thinks it's really weird, and notices this caked-on grease and grime and everything. She's like, I wonder what it would take to actually clean this thing. When, when was the last time they cleaned this dish? And, and so she documents it in this video, and day, day after day of cleaning it, she can't get the grime and the grease off of this pan. And so scrubbing it and letting it soak and actually orders more products from Amazon to like put onto this dish to try to get all the stuff clean. And so just scrubbing and scrubbing day after day and is nowhere closer to it actually being clean than it was before. And I won't tell you which restaurant it was because you might not want to go there ever again. But anyways... So this is the same problem with us. We're scrubbing our souls and we think that doing all the right things, believing all the right things is going to solve us. And and yet, if we try to do it on our own, if we fall into legalism, it's not going to work. But there's this other problem of antinomianism. This is the idea, this temptation is to just kind of give up. After hearing all of that, that sounds exhausting. You know what I'm going to do? You know, if God provides grace, this is what they would believe, they would argue that You know, if we can't actually be free from sin, then there's no reason to even try to avoid it. So just kind of live your life and let the grace of God just kind of cover over it, and then life is all good. This is the idea of antinomianism. And though I know most people wouldn't put it that way, just I'm going to live in debauchery, but I think that this is still a problem that we can fall into, thinking that, you know, it didn't really matter what you did last night because God's actually just going to cover that with his grace. But Paul, in Romans 6, he says that, as a true believer, you can't live that way. In, in Romans 6, he says you, you can't just keep on sinning, believing that grace is just an increase in coverage. Uh, and that actually says that the person who is truly saved, who's truly a follower of Christ, is now dead to sin. And so they, they no longer want to live that way. And if you do want to live that way, it might be an indicator that maybe you're not truly a follower of Christ. And if that sounds harsh, like read Hebrews chapter 6, where he says that anyone who believes that they can keep on sinning and yet God is just going to cover it, he actually said that that is the person who's actually re-crucifying Christ. It's a harsh word that the author of Hebrews is saying. He says that you're actually nailing Christ back on the cross if you don't do something with this, if you're not trying to at some point eliminate the sin in our lives. So understand that this is the gospel, that we only become pure in heart by confessing our sins to Christ to receive grace and forgiveness that only he can provide. That only Jesus can actually wash us clean. It's not something we do on our own. Christ does it for us through his sacrifice on the cross. And it's our undivided faith in him that gives us grace. And this has to change how we live our lives. If our relationship with him is real, then we have to act that way. In the same way, I can't help but think of it this way, is that because my relationship with my wife is real, I live differently now, right? So when we first started dating, I didn't just start dating Steph and think, oh, I'm not sure if that's going to work out, so I'm going to date these other people over here. 
Can you imagine how upset she would be if that's how I lived my life? No, she's like, okay, so we're committed. We're in this relationship, just me and her now. And it's the same thing with God. If you've given your life over to him, it's undivided, it's pure, just this relationship with him. He's the one who provides grace. And this is going to change how we live our lives. And so my invitation today is that you haven't accepted Christ. I I plead with you to, to make that decision today. And that it's free and open for anyone that you can do this today. That our hearts, they have to be purified. And there's different levels of purification. Uh, John MacArthur, as he was talking about this passage, he, he gave five different kinds of purity. And so he describes it this way. He says that there's this idea of, of primitive purity. Uh, I don't, personally, I don't really like that word. I would rather use this word of pure purity. But I can see why he didn't use that, because it's just repeating the same word. But anyways, pure purity, primitive purity, he would say that this is actually the only kind of purity that God actually has. It's part of his nature. That there's no sin in God, and he never will sin. He's entirely, entirely pure. It's part of his nature. It's kind of like how like, water is wet, so like, God is, is pure. This is who he is. And the second thing is created purity. That actually when God created everything in the universe, it was first created entirely pure. That, that when he made Adam and Eve, when, when he created everything, the angels, everything was created pure until the fall. And then the third type of purity that we see in scripture is ultimate purity. This is actually the glorification that we will receive if you're a follower of Christ. Ultimately, all the saints of God will be made entirely pure But right now we're living in, number four, positional purity. This is actually the imputed righteousness of Christ. So when God actually looks out upon you, though you might have made the biggest mistake of your entire life this morning, yet if you're a follower of Christ, as he looks out on you, he sees someone who has been made pure. Even though we can still make mistakes, he still sees us as someone who's pure in his eyes. But number five, this is actually what Jesus is talking about. This type of purity in this passage is is practical purity. And I would say that this is actually the hardest part of this all. Though we have positional purity right now, we'll have ultimate purity in the future, we have trouble of actually living out this purity right here and right now. But we must practice this type of purity. This is what he's calling us to. We have to put into practice. We have to ruthlessly eliminate that anything that's standing in our way. Because the more that we look at sin, the more that how despicable it becomes in our, in our eyes, and we truly have to see it that way, the more that we want to live differently. That we can't be complacent. And he gives us all the motivation. And he's not saying that this is going to earn your salvation. We already have it, right? So if you're a follower of Christ. But he's saying we're actually going to get right here, right now, is you actually can see more of God. And this should always be our goal, right? And this is what our souls are craving. If you feel empty right now, if you feel like life is meaningless, he's saying what you need is more of him, that God is actually the goal of everything in scripture. We get more of him. And trust me, at the end of our lives that we're all going to get more of God. Eventually, we will all see God one way or another. And so for the pure in heart, when they finally see God face to face, it'll be a time of celebration. Uh, That the pure in heart, that they'll be called sons or daughters of the king as they enter into his kingdom, and they'll finally be embraced by the one that they've been pursuing their entire lives. But not so for those who reject Christ. And when they see God, that it will be a moment of judgment. 
how terrifying it might be to be standing face to face with all the glory of God shining there, realizing that you've never placed your faith in him. My invitation again today, and I'll I'll stay up here at the front if you want to come and talk with me. My hope is that anyone who's hearing this would have a desire at least to start the conversation. What does it mean to actually follow Christ? Let's close off in prayer. Father God, I, I thank you that you would send your son, you would send Christ into this world to rescue us. That when you saw us lost and blinded in our own sinfulness, just completely rebelling from you, and that you didn't just uh, wipe the slate clean and, and decided to, to start creation somewhere else, but instead you desired to rescue and redeem us. And so, Lord, I pray that anyone who has experienced that here this morning, that they would live that out, that they would recognize it and live differently. And for anyone who hasn't experienced the forgiveness that you can provide, may they make that decision today. That it's easy to place our faith in you. Lord, I I thank you today. May you receive glory and praise this morning as we have worshiped you as we sing songs tonight. And Lord, I I pray that your spirit's just working in our hearts here this morning. We pray all this in your precious name. Amen. Like I said, if you want to talk with me today, please do so, or you can give me a call this week. Or if you want to talk with any of the elders, they'll be happy to chat with you as well. You can contact the office and again, touch with them that way. At the back of the room there, uh, we're not passing the offering plates around right now, uh, but they are at the back there. So if you want to participate in that way, you are, you're free to do so. But thank you so much for coming out today. And hopefully we can see uh, many of you here tonight. All right, God bless.